with SBS Radio. SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, welcome to NITV Radio. Happy to have your company this Monday, the 26th of September 2022. I am Petron Tungandami, and as always, very pleased to be your host. Now, coming up in your program today, we have a conversation with uh, Chelsea Claydon, co-founder of Kuri Kitchen Lismo, an initiative that uh, was born out of uh, the floods that devastated Lismo earlier this year to provide food and essential necessities to local residents and surrounding uh, communities. Well, half a year later, there's still crying need for Kuri Kitchen Lismo services as the grassroots organization is faced with frictions with the locals and uh, the local council. Also in the program, we have a conversation with Stella Green, a former client and now volunteer at the Curry Kitchen Lismo, sharing the story of her journey making an impact while helping her local community. And as you'll hear, volunteer, volunteers are doing a great job helping locals cope with the devastation as well as the spiraling cost of living. Also on NITV Radio, a group of eight Torres Strait Islander people have made international legal history after the United Nations Human Rights Committee found that the Australian government is violating its human rights obligations to them through climate change in action. All these stories and many more coming to you on NITV Radio after the latest news. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. Bulletin, Uluru Statement Leaders release ad campaign in support of First Nations Voice Referendum. Cost of Living, Budget and Independent Commission Against Corruption back on the agenda as Parliament returns. Italy on track to have its first female Prime Minister and most far-right leader since World War II. Statement campaign has released an advertisement to support its voice referendum campaign, History is Calling. The advertisement aims to inform the Australian public on how voting yes for a First Nations voice is a positive decision and will change history. Uluru Youth Dialogue co-chair Bridget Kama says the group is encouraging Australians to show their support for the Uluru Statement. She also says the process has taken 10 years, 10 reports and 7 separate formal processes to get to this stage. 
the hope of the ad is to raise awareness, educate and encourage encourage conversations. So encouraging Australians to have conversations around the referendum and the voice. Um, we also really want to remind Australians that they're going to play a really, really important role in um, this, this moment in our shared history. Federal Indigenous Affairs Minister Linda Barney has emphasised enshrining a voice to Parliament in the Constitution will have a tangible impact on the lives of Indigenous people across the country. But she said the voice would not be consulted on every piece of legislation before the Federal Parliament as some have raised concerns about a two-tier system. In an interview on Sky News, Ms. Bunny stressed that the voice would address two key issues, recognizing Australia's First Nations people as the longest continuous culture on the planet and improving the lives of Indigenous people. Uh, there is not equity in this country. Uh, whatever government's done in the past has not filled those gaps. And this is an opportunity, a nation-building opportunity, for us to get things right. The Voice will be an advisory body to the the Parliament. Things like land rights legislation, things like native title, cultural water allocations, childcare. A New Zealand museum is returning Indigenous artefacts to Australia. Four objects from the Waramungu people will be returned from a New Zealand museum to country in the Northern Territory. Two boomerangs, a Nazi and an axe, were collected by well-known anthropologist Baldwin Spencer and telegraph operator James Field. The men collected more than 6,000 items from Central Australia in the early 1900s, which have since been dispersed around the world. The four objects, now in the Takamaki Paengaika Auckland War Memorial Museum, will be returned to the Waramangu people later this year. It follows 12 months of consultation with the museum about the cultural significance of the four objects. A delegation of Indigenous representatives will travel to Auckland later this year to collect the items in an official handover ceremony. Federal Parliament is resuming today after being put on pause due to the Queen's death with cost-of-living pressures a federal ICAC and the budget set to be high on the agenda. Legislation to establish a federal independent commission against corruption is expected to be introduced to Parliament this week. Labour's budget is, st- is set to be handed down next month, and the fuel exercise is set to come to an end on Wednesday night. Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers told Sky News he knows that change won't be easy on households, but says relief is on the way. So what we're doing, whether it's childcare, whether it's cheaper TAFE fees, cheaper and cleaner uh, energy, cheaper medicines, uh, a responsible increase to the minimum wage, all of these things together are about providing cost of living relief in a responsible way, in a measured way, which makes life a bit easier for people uh, without being counterproductive and forcing the Reserve Bank's hand. Prime Minister Antonio Albanese says the widespread Optus data breach should be a huge wake-up call for the corporate sector regarding data protection. It comes after the announcement of one of the largest data breaches in the country last week, which could have compromised the personal records of up to 10 million Australians. In a bid to better safeguard information, Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill is expected to propose new legislation that would allow big companies to inform banks of data breaches earlier. Details of the government proposal remain unknown, but Mr Albanese told Brisbane radio station 4BC it will aim at stopping sophisticated criminals who are trying to access people's data.
and we want to make sure as well that we change some of the the privacy provisions there so that uh, if people are caught up like this, the banks can be let know uh, so that uh, they can protect their customers as well. But this is a massive breach that has occurred. Prime Minister Antonio Albanese has travelled to Japan for the state funeral of Shinzo Abe, an event which is still attracting considerable, do- considerable domestic opposition. The PM is, de- is leading a delegation which includes other former leaders including John Howard, Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull. Mr Abe was Japan's longest serving Prime Minister and visited Australia five times during his tenure. But a recent newspaper poll indicated some 60% of respondents said Mr Abe was not worthy of the honour of a state funeral because of the high price tag and mounting evidence of links between his political party and the controversial unification charge. Giorgia Meloni is on track to become Italy's first female prime minister and its most far-right leader since World War II. Voting has closed in the country's elections and Ms. Meloni has claimed leadership on the country's next election, next government with her opposition conceding defeat. Ms. Meloni's Brothers of Italy party, which has neo-fascist roots, has never held office but looks set to form Italy's most far-right government since the fall of dictator Benito Mussolini. The 45-year-old says Italians have sent a clear message with their voices, their votes. You know better than me that data is not final, but it seems to me, from the first projections, that we got from Italians on this national election a clear indication, the clear indication for a centre-right government led by Brothers of Italy. Cleanup efforts are underway in Atlantic Canada, where hundreds of people remain without power following Hurricane Fiona. The post-tropical cyclone travelled from the Caribbean before battering Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland and Quebec with strong winds, rain and waves. The Premier of Nova Nova Scotia, Tim Houston, says the cleanup effort will be a huge undertaking. We know that the, the climate is, is changing for sure. Uh, we're seeing, you know, if you look around the world, you're seeing fires, storms. Uh, certainly this is a historic storm um, for this province. There's no question about that. The damage is significant. But right now, the, the priority right now is getting power back to people, getting people a safe shelter, getting, you know, some, some return to normal. That will take time. Iran's president has warned authorities will deal decisively with the protesters as the death toll climbs to at least 41. The protests that began in Iran over a week ago have spread globally, with demonstrators condemning the death of a 22-year-old Kurdish woman who died in police custody last week. They are being met with a brutal crackdown by security forces, with some reports of ammunition being used. Men and women around the globe are flocking to the streets, including in Australia, Iraq, the United States and Germany. In Athens, many are shaving their hair in protest, like 33-year-old refugee from Tehran, Eli Fazloa. I'm cutting my hair because uh, many of uh, my sisters in Iran, they gonna die maybe tomorrow because of hijab and I don't want it and I hate it and I don't want to follow this terrorist and dictator regime and I'm here to support my people because they don't have voice, they don't have journalists to speak up about them. 
Back home, Star Entertainment Group's acting chief executive officer, Geoff Hogg, has resigned. It comes two weeks after an inquiry deemed the casino group was unfit to hold its New South Wales licence. The company was given 14 days to plead its case for why it should be allowed to keep the state operating licence. The exact date of, of Mr Hogg's departure is yet to be announced. And the Bureau of Meteorology is warning flooding is expected to continue in parts of New South Wales. A low trough moving across the state could prolong conditions, bringing with it widespread showers and thunderstorms. Water is, be- water is beginning to slowly recede in the town of Canada, and communities in Warren and Weewa in northern New South Wales are still cut off by flooding and could remain isolated for days. And in sport, Eliud Kipchoge has broken his own world record at the Berlin Marathon. The Kenyan athlete finished the race with a time of 2 hours, 1 minute and 9 seconds, which is 30 seconds faster than his timing in 2018. Speaking after the race, he said he still got more to give. I hope uh, future still great. I was planning to go to it with a 60-50, 60-40. But all in all, my legs were running actually very fast. And I thought, uh, oh, let me just try to run two hours flat. But all in all, I'm happy with the performance. And now having a look at the weather around the country, Brome a sunny day 35 degrees, Perth sunny 23, Adelaide showers 17, Melbourne showers 16 degrees, Hobart showers as well 18, Alpriwodonga cloudy day 13, Canberra cloudy as well 18 degrees, Wollongong cloudy 20, Sydney cloudy 21, Newcastle cloudy 22, Brisbane a sunny day ahead 26 degrees, Townsville sunny 29, Cairns sunny 31 degrees, Alice Springs cloudy Cloudy day 29, Darwin sunny 35, and the Torres Strait Islands partly cloudy day and a top of 32 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. You are with Bertrand Tungendami. Now coming up next in the program, we have a conversation with a clay. Chelsea Claydon, co-founder of the Curry Kitchen in Lismore, an organization that's uh, making an impact uh, in Lismore, helping the locals who are devastated by uh, floods earlier this year really cope with the situation, including uh, the sparring cost of living now, as you'll hear. The organization is uh, facing some unexpected hurdles thrown on their way. Also in the program, Stella Green, a former client and now volunteer at the Curry Kitchen Lismo, shares her story of uh, how she's giving uh, back to the community, providing a holistic approach to well-being. And a group of eight Torres Strait Islander people have made international legal history after the UN Human Rights Committee found that the Australian government is violating its human rights obligations to them through climate change inaction. NITV Radio, on radio, online and mobile. My guest is Chelsea Claydon, co-founder of Curry Kitchen Lismore. The kitchen was created in response to devastating floods earlier this year to provide hot meals and fresh fruit and vegetables, as well as essential necessities to local and surrounding communities. Very soon, Quarry Kitchen Lismore became an essential service for hundreds of people still reeling with the aftermath of the disaster, as well as the spiraling cost of living. 
Chelsea Clayton has accepted to talk to us about the situation several months after the natural disaster, the growing demand for Creek Kitchen services, as well as some challenges they are facing. First of all, welcome to Night TV Radio, Chelsea. Thank you for having me. Now take us through how this Curry Kitchen journey started. It was the week after the first flood. I went down to volunteer actually at the Curry Mail Hub, the recovery hub. It was quite incredible actually. There were people that had come from near and far just to volunteer and do cleaning houses, clean up the streets. At that point it was just diabolical. It looked like a war zone. Friends of mine actually had set up a dal table to serve food to everyone and from there it just progressed into this huge kitchen that we now have um, because we were feeding so many people it just expanded, expanded, expanded. I guess the experience for me and the reason it's been so amazing has been to connect with the community there it's been brilliant and and get to know everyone but also to give back and see how much the warm meal and a big big happy smile actually benefits everyone in such a tricky time and one of the recurring comments about uh Corey kitchen this whole initiative uh, whether it's on social media or from other commentators is that a warm meal brings people together and there's nothing like that Yes, I truly believe that. And what most people may not know is that uh, when the floods occurred, actually, there was almost total devastation with basic services completely disrupted, supermarkets shut, roads closed. So a service like uh, Curry Kitchen, uh, I'd say something that was imperative in the community. Yeah, it was imperative. I think at that point, people were just cleaning their houses all day long and forgetting to eat and feed themselves. So we were having drivers go out and drop food off on the streets, basically do reckeys. They were at that point still going to Cabbage Tree Island and um, areas around us that had also been affected um, because people weren't in their, you know, thinking mind they were actually just in trauma and basically trying to get their houses back to some normality and forgetting to actually do something so basic as to eat and feed themselves so that's why it was great and and um they were unable to get to shops because half of them lost their cars or most of them lost their cars and many people Several months on, many haven't fully recovered from that disaster. There's still growing need for your service and uh, supporting the local community. I guess now it's become a huge hub for more than just food. It's a place now because we've been there since the first flood, which is going on or past six months now. People know we're there. It's a sort of security um, and comfort spot for them to come and have a chat with other people that have gone through the same thing. We often have, you know, every fortnight um, the Healing Hub girls or guys come down and basically give some kind of mental relief, like mental um, health support, which is fantastic. And we have naturopaths that come and volunteer their time so people can actually look after themselves in this time of craziness for them. So it's not just about food. You you provide, uh, I would say, a holistic approach to well-being. 
Yeah, well, it's a bunch of people coming together, actually. It's been brilliant. People contacting, saying, can we come down and volunteer, set up a tent. It's been amazing. Just have to say you started with the chefs. Uh, I've seen on social media comments about uh, uh, some of them, and one in particular that caught my eyes, uh, Chef Hussein, with his uh, food, his uh, very good stews, um, uh, meat and vegetable stews and uh, uh, so and his pastries gosh we saw those on the weekend I'm so upset that I didn't get to try one <laughs> they get fed really well again I uh, have to stress that people who attend a curry kitchen get quality food prepared by volunteer chefs and uh, people who attend uh, your service are people from uh, all communities, First Nations and others who are all affected by uh, the flood devastation and uh, spiraling cost of uh, living uh, the same way. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's actually interesting seeing how these worlds have collided in such a great way. So there's so many different walks of life that are coming to sit on that balcony in the sunshine, have a meal and have a chat which is pretty special actually to see. It's definitely, I guess, brought together lots of different areas and different walks of life that wouldn't have crossed paths maybe before. That's what's great about it. Yeah, when I was preparing for this interview, I saw a figure that uh, is really quite impressive. So Curry Kitchen served more than 150,000 meals. That's quite impressive. I think it's actually, I think it's doubled. <laughs> we were working that out the other day, and I think now since then it's probably doubled. Yeah, we're still doing approximately 600 to 800 meals a day. We do 60 to 100 deliveries. Um, and then there's still areas around that um, people are, uh, a lot of people are camping in the front of their houses. Some of them still don't have vehicles, so they're unable to get to us, so we drop food to them. Wow. So you respond to a variety of needs, providing a holistic approach to well-being. This might have been one of my very first questions. How are you structured legally? We basically became incorporated with guidance through a really great law firm that took us on um, pro bono. Baker McKenzie, they were incredible. They basically guided us into becoming an incorporation. And then um, I guess from there, it was it's just been a huge learning curve for me because it's a whole other world, this not-for-profit world. And I think having to work in that structure, you know, with the community, it's been... Um, it's been tricky coming up against a lot of people that have obviously wanted us not to be there. Yeah. I think it would be great if we had the support of, I guess, the local council and um, other surrounding businesses because we're not affecting local business, that's for sure. Our clientele are not the people that would be eating food down the road at the pub for $30 a meal, you know. Yeah, I can uh, fully understand that. I see through that. But considering many people haven't been able or haven't had the means to rebuild after the floods... Uh, As it often happens, insurance policies don't cover all the losses. Government handouts are only valid for a short time. Then, after that, you're out out of pocket and on your own. Several months, even sometimes years after a natural disaster. 
Yeah, so that's the thing is seeing these people come back over this six months and, you know, you've got your retired couples, you've got families, you've got people that rented, people that owned property and all of them, the pain in their faces actually, even more so probably now because interest rates have gone up and because of inflation. So for us to be able to provide them, you know, we have Koori Coles, which is like a, it's sort of like a temporary shopping centre full of donated goods so it's um you know non-perishable items things that you'd get in the supermarket and also household essentials so they can come and get those for their family as well as a hot meal and that really makes a difference for a lot of them that are really really struggling still I remember the Kuri Mail had a similar initiative. Uh, are you guys working together because you're trying to address the same needs in the same community? Yeah, yeah. They're all, um, we, well, a lot of them are part of our team and on the board of our kitchen. They're amazing. They've been part of our family and so supportive of us from day one. It's just been phenomenal to actually integrate into this world and um, be a part of their beautiful, beautiful family. Now tell us about the hurdles, some of the hurdles you encountered along the way, including uh, the ones you just mentioned, uh, relationships with uh, the local council. Because I saw on social media that the local council is coming down heavy-handedly with parking fines, and uh, this has affected some of your volunteers, and uh, this uh, may actually affect uh, your overall operations. Yeah, it's, um, it's unfortunate because... I think the the community will be really upset if they end up saying we have to close that down um, in in a short period of time because the council, I don't really know many of them, to be honest with you. I have heard rumours from other people that there are a certain group that are trying to uh, say that we're overtaking local business now that cafes and things are opening up again, but... I don't think any of them have actually come and sat down in the hub and experienced or taken a look at what actually goes on. So they've made a judgment before they've actually even integrated to have a look at what's happening there. And I think um, overall there is still so many businesses not open. There's a handful that might be open and we are not conflicting with them at all or trying to overtake their business at all. And these groups might be exerting some pressure and influence uh, some adverse behaviour towards the organisation uh, and getting you booked. Yeah, well, the other day was actually pretty full on because we did have a number of, well, everyone got booked, all the cars. And actually, I was under the impression that um, most of that car park area where our marquee's been placed were actually um, reserved spots for us anyway, so we were able to move our tent even further across, which is taking up all of those car parking spaces, if we wished. So therefore, I'm not sure how so many people ended up getting parking fines after two hours, which is crazy. It's not really supporting us. (laughs) Let's face it, they should be supporting us. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. And now our conversation with uh, Stella Green, a volunteer with the Quarry Kitchen, uh, Lismore, sharing her journey with the organisation. 
a local resident, Leon Nismo, Stella Green first met the organization as a client, herself needing food and necessities after her home had been devastated by the floods. Stella is now giving back to the community, putting her many skills to the benefit of the community, providing much-needed support. I've come from many different industries. I've worked in print media, uh, I've worked in tourism, both in Australia and over in the Solomon Islands because my my birthplace is the Solomon Islands. And uh, growing up, being educated in Australia um, and, and coming from a very strong cultural group, I've become a lot more aware of the needs of First Nations as far as connection. Um, and so me living in Lismore, I'm here studying. Um, I've just finished a Cert for in Mental Health, but I'm also very interested in the environment here. And from time to time, I collaborate with writers for a couple of United Nations um, subgroups called United Nations ASCAP as well as Habitat. So um, there is quite a lot of uh, writing that I do, but I'm also very active in the community on top of that with the mental health work. Yeah, quite an impressive array of skills you're bringing in there and uh, the perfect volunteer, I would say, because many people would like to volunteer and contribute, but uh, without the right skills, uh, their contribution uh, can be rendered completely useless. Yes, that's right. And just Career Mail as uh, an organisation, they also provided extra training for us workers in um, mental health first aid. So that really has equipped us with a little bit more knowledge, especially when we're dealing with what the First Nations are going through in this um, area, which is the Widjibal Waibal tribe and group. Um, And, you know, we have a lot of other uh, families that have moved here that are from other nations. Um, And it was really important for this to be here for them as well because there is still quite a lot of negative um, behaviours out there in the wider community for our people. So it's a place of safety as well. Now, can you share with us, uh, without naming names, of course, uh, the story, maybe a story, a case uh, that's uh, one of the most remarkable that you've come across uh, in your volunteer work with uh, the Curry Kitchen Lismo? There's been so many. I think one of the most outstanding cases is a young single mum who lost everything in her home. Uh, She owns her own house in North Lismore. She's been coming to the kitchen for since the beginning and uh, she was rehoused in a unit in Ganelaba with her daughter and she's really undergone quite a long journey with her mental health part of her therapy is to come down and have some food while her daughter's in school and just talk. And she's been able to source beautiful food, but also just talk through what she's going through. She does use our mental health wellness team uh, members for a much deeper therapy, but I've seen her bounce back and she's actually moving back to her home Uh, In the past, she wasn't able to think about ever going back um, because it was quite traumatic. Um, And she's been 
still coming to us because her kitchen's not quite there yet. Um, and she's always smiling now, which before she, she wasn't very uh, responding to us encouraging her to look at the brighter side of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's one of the most outstanding cases that I can talk about. But there have been many, many, many. Yeah, I fully understand that there will be many, many cases uh, arriving there because uh, seeing 600 people providing 600 meals a day, it means you really get to see 600 different faces and uh, all these people will be coming with uh, different needs and uh, other than just uh, the food, they'll have other needs that uh, they might open up and um, ask for help or they might not, but as a trained professional, you may be able to identify uh, needs that they don't necessarily express. That's right. That's exactly right. Now, before I let you go, any closing word or something we haven't covered you'd like to add to the conversation? Yes. So Lismore, um, as a community, have become an incredible evidence of how community can come together and work to come back. Um, you know, we have some amazing organisations here. We have uh, Resilience Lismore. Uh, we have all the, the, the churches. And being part of Mal Hub, which is everything, kitchen, op shop, and uh, the advice that, you know, the wellness team can give, um, has really opened up my eyes to how community spirit and working together as a community can work because we're seeing that government is failing us, but we're moving forward as a community. And I think that's what's really inspiring about being a, a volunteer in that I can see that firsthand. It's quite a strong community um, and we all work together as one. There's no, they're doing that and we're doing this. It's all about how we can help each other and and uh, service the community that is Lismore. And just this prompts me to ask another question. You just mentioned uh, government uh, failure and um, inadequate response to uh, the needs of a community in need. But I also heard that the local council is not really quite collaborative. It's been uh, heavy-handed lately, issuing uh, parking fines to volunteers uh, carrying out uh, essential work. Yes, yes. So... Last Monday, uh, the enforcement of um, parking fines came into effect. Um, So as volunteers, we're having to play a little bit of a shuffle every day because there are only two hour limits on the street level and then in the public car park, there's three hours. So uh, we're having to be mindful about how long we're staying in car parks. Um, So uh, as an organisation, you know, we hopefully can approach council about being a little bit lenient um, towards us volunteers regarding our parking. Um, So, yeah, that's a a new thing that's just come up in the last week. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. Now, before the break, you had an interview with uh, Stella Green, but I just have to let you know that this is part of a very long conversation that we had uh, and recorded before the program. Same with the conversation with uh, Chelsea Claydon, but uh, good news is uh, both conversations will be published uh, on our website, sbs.com.au slash NITV radio shortly after the program.
Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Now, the United Nations Committee has found that Australia has violated the human rights of Torres Strait Islanders by failing to protect them from the effects of climate change. The Australian government is now under pressure to compensate the eight Torres Strait Islanders and their children who brought forward the complaint three years ago. Katrina Stirat reports. The United Nations has ruled that the Australian government has violated the human rights of Torres Strait Islanders by failing to adequately protect them from the effects of climate change. This is the result of a complaint brought forward three years ago by eight Torres Strait Islanders and their children, which claimed changes in weather patterns had harmed their livelihood, culture and traditional way of life. Traditional owner on the island of Masig, Yese Mosby, is one of the eight claimants on the case. He says he's devastated by the rapid destruction he's observed on his home. Inundation and erosion is affecting our daily life every single day. It's not only affecting our home by eating our islands away, but it also affects the marine life and the bird bird colony which flies from Australia to Papua New Guinea. Now these islands here are uh, the, the islands where they, you know, s- settle. Even more confronting is the way climate change has destroyed the resting place of their loved ones, says Mr Mosby. Saddest thing is our loved ones, where we are connected to our great-great-grandparents, their remains now is being washed away due to inundation and erosion. They weren't buried on the shoreline, they were buried inland. And a lot of their remains now are facing danger that there is at the coastline and most of our loved ones is vanished now. We cannot see them, we cannot go and put flowers on the graves anymore. The group of complainants are all from four small, low-lying islands in the Pacific region. Boyugu, Puruma, Waraba and Masig. They claimed their rights had been violated because Australia had failed to adapt to climate change by upgrading seawalls or reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And on Friday, the UN Human Rights Committee supported these claims. The UN decision found Australia's failure to address climate change violated their rights to enjoy their culture and be free from arbitrary interference with their private life, family and home. These effects are clear further west on Saibai Island, as community leader Kerry Akiba explains. It's very uh, evident on Saibai because of low, it's a low-lying area. Uh, we've seen, it used to, used to have beaches along, along the foreshore here, but not anymore. And uh, we've noticed during high tides, and practically all Saibai will be underwater. It'll be submerged. The Australian government says it will consider the report but has not yet committed to compensation. One of the Labor government's first commitments was to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 43% by 2030. Labor Minister Amanda Rishworth insists they already present stronger commitments to climate change than the previous coalition government. 
The government has been working very closely with our Torres Strait Islanders uh, about climate change. In fact, the Prime Minister, the Minister for Climate Change and the Minister for Indigenous Australians has travelled up uh, to the Torres Strait. Um, this complaint uh, was put in under the previous government and we will uh, consider the report and make a response in due time. But protesters in Sydney today say the government's current policy doesn't go far enough to mitigate the impacts of climate change. First Nations protesters are calling on the government to listen to their knowledge of the land. Protester Joshua Bell says Indigenous Australians need to be leading the response to climate change. It's not a black or white issue, it's a humanity issue. And if our waterways are destroyed and our sacred sites are destroyed, the mental and spiritual damage it does to our health is, you can't even begin to describe it. We need to have us in the driver's seat now. We need to have Indigenous people lead in the, the educational, um, environmental ways. You know, there's many different tribes in Australia, so we, co- we kind of need a representative from each tribe to form an alliance and to form that the old ways spirit of, um, of uh, adhering to the law of the land. Traditional owner Yesse Mosby agrees the Australian government needs to be more active in the fight against climate change. He calls on the government to witness firsthand the damage already tearing through his Pacific Island home. We want the Australian government to come, to come for our home, as we gave them an invitation first and uh, they declined it. But um, now we want them to come, definitely come to our islands and sit with the people here in the village and um, have, a, have a look physically um, what's happening to our home and work together from there in how we can save this home and for our children to remain here. For now, Mr Mosby says the UN decision is a welcome first step, but it's vital the Australian government thinks about future generations. For our future generations, especially to, to remain on their home, practice their culture and their tradition have, as we've done this for over thousands of years, to have the opportunity to live life freely without fear of climate change. Katrina Stirrett, SBS News. You're with NITV Radio. us to the end of today's program Bertrand Tungandami I'm Bertrand Tungandami thanking you for tuning in to NITV Radio today, I hope you enjoyed the program till next time bye for now Yalu Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from.